Um, yeah, so um, it's episode three today. Um, it's about heaven. Uh, we, we, we said this part was heaven, who's going? That's been our series. Uh, this is the final chapter. I'm going to give you a bit of a summation, but uh, here's the final episode of the Who's Going section. Then in March, we're going to restart the heaven part, but switch gears, and instead of who's going, we will be taking a viewing. We're going we're gonna to do kind of more of a walkthrough, all right? It, it's not quite Robin Leach and the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It's not MTV Cribs, but we're going to try and get a lay of the land to take a look around regarding heaven, what we might expect. February, which is on the horizon, we're doing outflow again, and that means we're going to hear uh, you, from unique individuals who are involved in mission in all kinds of different ways. Um, we're going to see what it looked like for them. Uh, we're, we're looking to watch and, and to learn from them what happens when God so fills hearts of regular people that they overflow, and then the life is, is, is lived in earnest pursuit of Jesus and His mission. So we've got good stuff on the horizon. But uh, for today, it's rules, all right? And who doesn't love rules, right? Uh, the more, the merrier. That's what we normally say. Uh, one thing I have never bothered to do is to write a list of rules for the neighbor's kids. Sometimes they might have benefited uh, greatly from me crafting rules for them, but we never did that. We didn't give rules to the neighbor's kids because they were not our kids, for those of you who have kids or are planning on having kids or have grandchildren now, it's even more uh, on your mind, I think that you're going to be able to agree with this thought. Okay, here it is. We did not have children so that there would be someone to keep the rules. When we were choosing what was most important, we decided that the children came first and the rules were second. We did not love our rules. We do love our children, but we do love us some rules as Christians, don't we? And sometimes you might hear us say, and when I say us here, I, I mean people who call themselves Christians. I don't necessarily mean into one, okay? We do have a, a big family out there, and we don't get to choose them all, all right? So sometimes self-identifying Christians, they say stuff like, I'm right about God, and I'm right with God. So God loves us us more than He loves you. We're the followers, right? We're the ones doing all the good things, and you're the one doing the bad things. You don't even do the things that God said that you're supposed to do, and you certainly are the ones doing the things that God said that you're not to do. So how do you expect God to look at you nicely when you don't do the things He said? Christians sometimes do stuff like that. And then they look. They, they say, look at me, all right? Look what I'm doing. You see what I'm doing? You should do what I'm doing. You see this? You see this? Here, watch this. I'm doing stuff. I'm doing good stuff. I'm doing God stuff. But then these people, they do watch, right? They watch what we do. And too often, do you know what they see? They see us mistreating other people. And honestly, that should irritate you. It irritated Jesus. He had no patience with the idea that you can be right with God and at the same time be mistreating people that God loves. Jesus' big command was love one another. And when he said that, there was no implication that he meant 
love these people, but not those people. He said, love one another. It was this focus that made Jesus the most critical of the group of people who were thought by the, the society as a, as a whole to be the best people. Jesus, in summary, was saying it doesn't matter if you believe right. It doesn't matter your level of experience. It doesn't matter your level of even theological training. It doesn't matter even your level of knowledge of Scripture. It doesn't matter your sense of personal piety. It doesn't matter your sense of, well, I know better than all those around me. It doesn't matter because you mistreat others. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. I mean, you look good on the outside. You look good, but on the, on the inside, you're rotten. So hearing this, the general population, they go, yeah, go, Jesus, we're with you. We've seen this hypocrisy for years, but you know, frankly, we're way too intimidated to do anything about it publicly. Jesus had no tolerance for internalized, believe only, do nothing religion. That's our quick summary. So that's where we stand, but there are the questions that keep popping up and uh, that make this a challenge, okay? This is, this is in uh, the context that we're going to use right now is the Jewish religion and the Christian religion and, and where, where does all this confusion come from? Well, it seems um, the, the, how good you have to be, it, it comes from a place. And we, we've heard that Jesus said good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people go to heaven. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. That is fabulous. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for paying for my sin. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. But, Jesus, help me out here. If rule-keeping won't get me into heaven, well, then why are there so many rules? So, about those rules. Why all the rules? How did this get to be so confusing? Where did the idea even come from that if you're good enough, that gets you into heaven? Who made that up? The answer to these questions, honestly, it's some of the primary reasons that you should consider following Jesus and, or continue following Jesus. Probably the key place boys, I write down that this confusion emanates from, can you guess where it might start? I gave you a hint in episode one. The Ten Commandments. It's not just the movie, okay? It's the actual tablets. There is a list that some people swear by. They call it the Ten Commandments, but they don't live by it. It's a list that most people know by title, but not by commandment. Remember, I did tell you in episode one that we would be coming here in episode three. We talked about the references, where you could find it. I told you that you would have the time to go and look them up so you could familiarize yourself with them before today. I was trying to help you avoid embarrassment today. Since episode one, who went, looked them up, and learned them all? Anyone? Now, don't, don't answer. Don't raise your hands, all right? We're not going to do anything like that here. I'm not actually here to embarrass you. We go together on this road so we can have fun together. But let's not embarrass one another. Let's make it easy, okay, for you and for people that you talk to about this as well. When we go looking for the Ten Commandments, you know, where would we find them? You know, somewhere near the front, right? It's in the second 
smaller section of the Bible. Church people generally call these sections books. This book is actually an ancient historical manuscript, and it's called Exodus. And the reason it's named Exodus is because it chronicles Israel, ancient Israel's departure or exit or exodus from Egyptian slavery. Okay? So a little backstory. You need the prequel to really understand the sequel here. So to get to the Exodus story, you need a little bit of the Genesis story. God calls a man named Abraham. God promised, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you famous. And check, promise kept. That promise was kept because most of you have heard of Abraham before I said his name today. That guy's famous. So Abraham eventually has a family, and one of his great-grandsons, Joseph, takes his whole extended family to Egypt to escape from a famine. And there they multiply like rabbits. And that makes Pharaoh nervous, okay? And it makes all of the Egyptians nervous. It's us and them. And so they decide if we don't do something, they are going to overpopulate us. And they're going to take over our nation. So they have a solution, and they come up with this. It's for Egypt to enslave all of Abraham's descendants. And they become a slave state in the state of Egypt. And that's where the story paused for about 400 years. Then God moved, called a man named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then we get the 10 plagues and Pharaoh changes his mind and he eventually lets them go. Moses takes the nation and they exodus, thus the name, right? So the backstory really matters because it explains the mindset of the people. They have been a slave state for 400 years. None of them was ever alive or ever knew anyone who was alive prior to them being slaves. And as a nation that was within a nation, they have no civil law, no constitution, no bylaws. They've never functioned independently. And there's a bunch of them, right? Multiplied like rabbits. So estimates uh, target the number of Israelites leaving Egypt from a million people all the way up to two million people. All these people on the way out of Egypt into the desert following Moses. And God provides for these people. And He provides through Moses a constitution and, and laws and civil laws and how to conduct their lives together for the first time without being under the oppressive boot of Egypt. What, what happens to people when they get newfound freedom? We get into trouble. So, so God in His mercy gives them the law to try and circumvent that. What a lot of people don't realize is just how good the law was. The Old Testament in general, it takes a lot of heat from people who live in a different century, in a different culture, with no idea of what things were like in the world everywhere way back then. So the law that God gave um, the ancient Israelites was so far ahead of its time that there's really no explanation for it, except that it was in reality given by God. Now, there's a divine element to this law because there was nothing that paralleled it. In some cases, there are things that God gave Israel that didn't show up in other civilizations for 2,000 years. 
There are, there are so many rights and so many protections that are built, baked right into the law for people in that world who had everywhere else no rights. They had protections. And just to keep the series-long theme going here, for example, slavery. We know the word. Uh, and even in our world, we, we, which is so distant from that of the ancient Israelites, we know that there's more than one kind of slavery. There are many different types. And there's a slavery that's per permitted under Mosaic law, and that sets people off. But the, mo the Mosaic law, the slaveries that we know, there's nothing. To, they're not the same. Same name, different meaning. In that culture, you could choose to sell yourself into this servitude for cash and then buy yourself back out later on. There were many ways for slaves to no longer be slaves, which is very unlike the slavery that we think of. You were not allowed to dominate or, or imprison slaves. And in some ways, they were like personal service workers with an open-ended contract. That is under the Mosaic Law. But that is not the way that it was seen under all of the other countries' laws. What they had experienced as slaves in Egypt was not permitted in ancient Israel. Same word, different meaning. Now, what happened outside of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years around the world was not, was never permissible in Israel. It was unprecedented that slaves had rights. Now, that's baked into the very beginning of their system of law, which was given by God. But here's the thing for us. This amazing law that God gave Israel in the book of Exodus doesn't show up until Exodus chapter 20. That's right. We were all well into the story by chapter 20. So much has already happened. So much has happened. But what kinds of so much has already happened? What's going on in chapters 1 to 19? Great question. So glad you asked it. We got 19 chapters of God demonstrating His love to a people that He considered His own, His people that He delivered out of Egypt, from slavery to freedom, not because they kept His law. They had no idea about any of His laws, not because they followed the ceremonial rules. They had no idea about any rules. He saved them. He led them out. He led them away. He freed them all pre-law. And do you know why God delivered them from the oppression of Egypt? Because He wanted to. Here's the bottom line. For our discussion today, for the God of Judaism, the God of Christianity, relationship always precedes the rules. God did not give Israel the law as a means of establishing a relationship with them. God gave Israel the law because they were already in a relationship. It wasn't a condition of the relationship. It was a confirmation of the relationship. Okay, now, it's about three-plus months after they've left Egypt. Moses has led them to the base of Mount Sinai. There they are. And there God provides the people through Moses with this incredibly detailed, extraordinary constitution or law to guide the people. And the way this thing starts is not all, thou shalt not, you know, in giant, bold, all uppercase letters like on Facebook. Here is the preamble to the introduction to the law. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am 
the Lord your God. We already have a connection. Who, who, who am I, you ask? Well, here's just a touch of my resume. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It was just a few months ago. I mean, recall this with me for a moment here. I'm sure you guys cannot possibly have forgotten about this already. It was just a couple of months ago that you were in, in slavery in Egypt, right? You belonged to Pharaoh. Now you belong to me. I've got you. I've got your back. I'm with you. I've reclaimed you. I have redeemed you from your previous owner. You belong to me. I will care for you without me requiring anything from you except a single expression of trust. All I asked was that you would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintel of your houses in Egypt. You did that as a symbol of the fact that you trusted in Yahweh. That's me. That's my name. One single expression of trust, and now you're in. Now that you know I have your best interests in mind, I want you to keep following me. Come after me. Come with me. And I want you to obey me. Okay, so that's the intro. Command number one, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. And they are thinking, uh, yeah, why would we? Uh, we just watched this God go up against head-to-head with like every one of the Egyptian gods, the most powerful superpower on the earth, and he knocked all the gods flat. Much of the strength of a nation was seen as coming from the god or the gods of that nation, and one god just whooped all of the Egyptian gods like they were, like they were nothing, some superpower. And the next command, I am the Lord your God, and you are going to worship me. And, and, and what he said next, when we read it, it doesn't even make sense to us. You know, why do they bother to include this? We just read it as, of course, whatever, so obvious, but it is unprecedented. It would be like 1,500 years before the next civilization would catch up to this next statement. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in heaven above, the earth below, or in the waters below. No image, nothing, nada, zero, zip. There is nothing that represents me accurately, therefore have no idol. Don't think that I look like anything that I created. A system of worship without an idol, it's just unheard of. It just didn't make any sense. And if you know the story, it wasn't very long before they broke that law because it just blew their minds too much to imagine a God without an idol. But he says, I don't, I don't want you to ever get the idea that you can take an image of me and, and, and place it over here and then, then you go over there and you do whatever you're going to do over here. Don't you think for a moment that I'm not there also. I'm everywhere. I'm not controlled or constrained in any way, and I don't want you to even have that symbolism in your mind. Then later on in the commands, he goes for unprecedented. Again, I want you to take a day off. What? We're going to starve. No, you won't. I'll take care of you. I want you to have a day when no one works. And this is next level again. Not even your slaves. Of all the things that we give 
Credit to God for creating. He is the creator God. Did you ever stop to think? Did you ever stop to give him credit for the creation of the weekend? I mean, God understands our discomforts. He's saying that he wants our trust, that we can trust him, even in the weekly patterns, in the rhythms of living. And no one had any idea about days off. This was never a thing. Nobody did this. It was not a thing until God created it and gave it as a gift to his people and as a faith foothold as well. My faith in God, my trust in God is reflected in our weekly pattern of a day off from believing that nothing will happen without us intervening. We practice trust in God with the Sabbath. God is teaching us and reminding us every week that every human being is valuable to me. Slaves and servants are no different in their value to me. I want you to see, I want you to understand this value. Everyone has dignity in my eyes, and it's not because of their right behavior. The elderly, the working age, the youngest, the men and the women, the, the, the most influential and the least influential, the, the, the wealthy and the poor, the powerless and the powerful, the beautiful and the humble, the best educated and the least educated. The value system that God was revealing here was unknown in the rest of the world. And it wouldn't be broadly accepted for thousands of years. We know that because we still struggle with it today. The bulk of the commands after that are, here's how to treat people and honor them. Respect, dignity, honor. Okay, the quick summary, honor me, I rescued you. Honor others, they are made in my image. Treat slaves with justice because you were once a slave yourself. Do not ever forget where you came from. So, that's the top ten, okay? But there's like 603 other laws given by God. Why so many? Because this is their civil law. And you know people will always go looking for what they can get away with, right? This touched every single aspect of their lives. Why did God give them such a detailed law? Because God cared about his people. But we already summarized all of that at the beginning. When it comes to God, relationship precedes the rules. The Israelites did not behave their way in. Then read the rest of the story. Do you know what else they were? They, they, they were not able to misbehave their way out. And when you read the rest of the Old Testament, it sounds like, it sounds like they were really trying to behave their way out. But this, this was God's way of warning the people that if you give up on my law, you give up on your freedom. Through all of the things that they do and, and everything that they don't do, God never abandons his people. Time passes. About 1,500 years later, Jesus gathers with his 12 apostles in a room in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover was the annual celebration of when God delivered the nation from Egypt, Exodus. They made it central to remember, to never forget what God had done for them, where they came from. And even though Passover was a huge tradition and it was anticipated and it was planned for and it was nationwide, it was so hard to actually celebrate it authentically during the first century. 
You're celebrating your freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression, but you're living under Roman occupation and oppression. How do we celebrate God's gift of freedom when we are living in a new state of oppression? How do we deal with this incongruity? So Jesus calls his fellows together, and they know Passover, right? They've been celebrating Passover the same way for their entire lives. There's a script. You follow it. You say these lines, and then I reply with these lines. You ask these questions, I, ask, uh, I answer the same questions that we've answered year after year. You know what to do. We've all done it our whole lives so many times before. And that night, they're expecting the same thing. They expect to know what's going to happen. But Jesus, he throws such a massive bomb into that night that they would never be able to forget it. This is not a, a, wrench, in the a wrench in the machine or a fly in the ointment. This was a bomb. If they hadn't known him, if they hadn't been following him for years, if they hadn't watched him do miracle after miracle, if they hadn't heard him teach so many times, if they hadn't been so devoted to him, they should have just gotten up and walked out. He says, from now on, when you celebrate Passover, keep celebrating it, okay? But from now on, when you celebrate, I don't want you to do this in remembrance of what happened 1,500 years ago in Egypt. From now on, I want you to do this, Luke chapter 22, 19. Do this in remembrance of me. What God did for the Jewish people all those centuries ago, Jesus is about to do for the entire world. Jesus is about to invite the entire world to embrace a single expression of trust that will introduce them into a relationship with God. And he goes on, verse 20, this cup is the new covenant, a relationship, a new kind of order, a new kind of approach. There was a covenant. That's the one that you thought you came here to remember. By default, that one is now the old covenant. It didn't used to be old, but now it is, because I'm introducing to you a new covenant, and it's going to be in my blood, which is poured out for you. Not that night, but the next day. He would shed His blood for them and for the entire world and establish this covenant, the first covenant, the one that we now call the old covenant, was done with Israel. And it was established with the Lamb's blood on the door frames in Egypt. And Jesus says, now I am the final one. That strikes them. Boom! Some of them remember. Remember that day out by the Jordan River? It's like three and a half years ago. And, and there's John the Baptist. He's on the edge of the river. He's got a crowd around him. And all of a sudden, John points off somewhere over there. And there's a guy that appears. And, and, and John points and he says, behold, look, over there, that gun. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And suddenly it all comes together. The nation of Israel is the, is the backstory to the main story, but it was an essential story to get them to this point in history. God was about to do something new, a new covenant. Your Bible is divided up into two big sections, right? You know this, right? There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. But here's where some translator is accurate, but 
not as helpful as they could have been. Testament is a Latin word. Covenant is a Hebrew word. They mean the same thing, basically. So when you look at that first section of your Bible that's called the Old Testament, <coughs> you could call it the Old Covenant. And the second section should really be known not as the New Testament, but as the New Covenant. And if we wanted to be more polite and respectful to our Jewish brothers and sisters, we could call it the Jewish Scriptures and the New Covenant. And so here we are at the beginning of the New Covenant, not one with just the nation of Israel, but one with the whole world. Just as God delivered ancient Israel from slavery, Jesus, He's about to deliver the world from slavery and the ultimate consequence of death. And the term and the condition will be the same as it was 1,500 years ago. It's a single expression of trust. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul, he's on both sides for this, okay? He's a Pharisee, maybe one of the greatest Pharisees ever. He knows the law. He keeps the law. He is one of the best of the best. And then he became a Jesus follower, and, and, and then... He calls himself the chief of all sinners. He says, like, I, I thought I had it going on. I thought I knew what was happening. And then I met Jesus and my whole worldview just changed. Because he was a Pharisee, he understood this parallel track that's going on. He understood that God had done for the nation 1,500 years ago. He knew that. He understood that. He taught that. And he understood what God, through Jesus, just had done for the entire world. And he writes, just as God demonstrated his love for the nation like that, just like he did it back then, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul was alive when Jesus was crucified. Paul's friends and the people Paul knew were alive when Jesus was crucified, but he was nowhere close to it. And in telling his own story, it's like, like he's saying, I realize now that when I was 100% wrong about God, I was so wrong that when I heard these stories about Jesus and they start to pop up, I began to persecute the Jesus movement and, and to persecute the Jesus followers. I was wrong. I was in error. I was an enemy. I was mistreating people in the name of my God. While I was alive on this earth and God knew everything that I had done and was just about to do, His Son died for my sin anyway. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Two verses later, Romans 5, 10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him, while we were actively opposed, or, you know, in our case, non-existent, God went ahead and reconciled us to Himself through what? Through rule-keeping? Through keeping our promises? No, Paul says, I have tried it all. I have done that. I have kept the rules. I followed the laws. Somehow, in doing that, I missed the point. Somehow, in following the rules and seeking self-righteously to honor God on my own, I ended up mistreating people that God loves. 
And if you asked me, why did I do that? I would tell you that it was because of my devotion, because of my piety, because of my superior understanding, because of my mistaken godliness. I mistreated people that God loves because I was right and they were wrong. This is the fork in the road. This might be your hard part right here. How do you find peace with God? Paul discovered that we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And the reason that the gospel of Jesus is good news is because we don't good our way in. We don't behave our way in just like my sons do not behave their way into our family. More good news. We can't bad our way out. Just like my kids can't behave their way out. They are my children. I am their father regardless. Today there is, there is somebody who's listening, watching. You need to hear that. You're conflicted. You have been conflicted. You are unsure. You, you, you say, I, you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I promised. You don't know what I have said. Listen to Paul here. He knows what it is to be on the outside of godliness and looking in. That's why it was such a big deal for, for us to hear it, for him to say it while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He did something for us, and it did not require something from us for him to do it. He is offering a gift, and it, he is not ignorant to who you are. He is not ignorant to what you have done as he offers the gift. Take the gift. Don't stay distant. Don't stay separated. Come on. Return. Come back. Follow. Let's go on this road trip in earnest pursuit of Jesus together. That's why Jesus did not say, you must behave again. Because John was there with Jesus that night that he was talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a smart, accomplished, well-educated man. He's a leader in the temple system. He's got, he knows lots of stuff, and he's working really hard to figure this whole thing out that Jesus is telling him. And Jesus did not tell him to behave again. Jesus told him, you must be born again, because the law was simply confirmation of God's love for a people, but you are born into a family. Jesus invited Nicodemus, and he's inviting you to be born again into his family. So if you wonder where you stand with God, and you keep looking at how well you're doing, how well you're doing in comparison to them, according to Jesus, who rose from the dead, you're looking in the wrong place. Why all the rules? Well, for Israel, God was not attempting to make a bad people good. God was keeping His free people free. And the same is true for you. It's true for me. With God, as with all good parents, the relationship always precedes the rules. The rules are simply God's way of saying, because I love you, here's how I want you to live. Because I love you, here, here's why I want you to forgive. Because I, because I love you, this, I, I want you to serve one another. Because I love you, 
Here's why I want you to treat your enemy with kindness. Because I love you. This is why I want you to take the log out of your own eye before you worry about those around you and how they don't measure up. I'm giving you guidance to live this way because I love you. And, and, and I know what brings the most happiness and fulfillment and peace. And that is to follow the cues, to follow the life, to follow m- what my son modeled when he was on earth. We are reconciled to God by grace. We are made to be able to fit with God by grace. We choose to follow. We choose to obey out of gratitude. So Jesus summarized it. So he made it so simple. He said, here's all that I want you to do. Here's what it looks like to follow and obey me. Here's your, your one rule. Apply it everywhere. I just want you to treat other people the way that I have treated you. Do not forget that once upon a time, you were slaves. Now, living this out, some of the earliest direction on how to live the Christian life. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And this letter, it dates uh, to right at the very beginning of Christian ancient historical documents. This was written before any of the Gospels. This was written when being a Christian meant that you were in the minority in the culture no matter where you lived. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition, your goal, your focus. Do this. Work towards this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Did you know that was in the Bible? Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Take care of your family. Love one another. Love your enemies. Don't take rules that you committed to follow out of love for Jesus and rub them in other people's faces. Why? Why should you do this? Why why should you be about this? Verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Where did we get the idea that somehow we are to impose our rules, our family rules, on those who don't even want to be in our family? Relationship precedes the rules. No one wants to follow Jesus because of the rules. We obey out of gratitude for that which Christ has done for us. We didn't start with the rules, so why should we make others start with the rules? We've gotten it wrong. We've gotten it backwards. The rules are for family. But one last thing. For those who are outside of our family, while the rules don't apply to you, They most certainly could benefit you. They do reveal truth. But while the rules don't apply to you, God's love definitely, absolutely applies to you. God right now loves you as if you were already in the family and related to Him. So His invitation to relationship is a standing invitation, an invitation not accepted through promises. I'll do better this time. An invitation that is simply accepted by acknowledging what He has already done for you. Who goes to heaven? Forgiven people go to heaven. How do we find forgiveness? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Heavenly Father, it's so 
simple, so simple that we could just walk right by, figuring it's got to be harder than this. Sometimes it also feels so threatening that we resist you. Freedom comes through you, and yet to receive your forgiveness and your grace, we have to somehow process this with our own humility or lack of humility. We don't like to be humble. We don't like to need. We don't like to repent. There are times that we just don't like that part, and we resist. Grant us the gift of humility that we can experience the joy of coming to you for the first time or back to you for the 87th time. Draw us back to you. Guide us forward into this week where once again we might seek as our ambition to live quiet lives that win the respect of others. Grant us the eyes to see you so that we might follow you as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.